0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Kalila Olacanola today on the Impact Makers Podcast. Kalila, who is also known as KO, is someone that I've admired for quite a while now after coming across her profile on LinkedIn and then catching her first podcast interview on the HR Social Hour Half Hour podcast almost four years ago. Kalila is an extraordinary human, an HR executive, community leader, and now business owner for the sixth time, and the story of her life to date is so completely inspiring that I hope you can forgive me for being in tears during most of our conversation today. But I also had a big smile on my face and felt like I, too, can change the world as a result of receiving her energy and inspiration. After a relatively uneventful childhood, Kalila's life was impacted negatively by the introduction of alcoholism into her family's home. As a result of the conflict and turmoil that followed, she became homeless and on her own in her early teens, which ultimately led her to seek some semblance of safety with distant relatives in an environment that actually wasn't safe at all. Through choices made while living in those difficult circumstances, she ended up in prison with a sentence of five years to life. But while in prison and working in the prison ministry, she decided that she wanted to make a positive impact in the lives of others and would do everything that she could when she was released to turn her pain and problems into purpose in order to change and shift the lives of those that need it. And that's just the start of her story. It gets even better as she creates success for herself and others through her own ingenuity and hard work and also encounters, seemingly randomly, but probably not, several key people along the way that have been instrumental in exposing her to or providing opportunities for her to use her gifts and talents to lift up others. Along the way, she found herself working as a chief people officer, a job that she initially did not want to do, working in a startup with a social mission to unite gang rivals and decrease gang violence in the city of Wilmington, North Carolina. And by the way, the goal was for the employees of this brewery called True Colors to remain as active members in their gangs so that they could leverage their influence in their communities and help to stop the violence. But I'm going to stop right there because Kalila shares her story way better than I do. And I know you'll be fascinated and inspired not only by how she has turned her own pain and problems into positivity, but how she was able to greatly expand her impact once she decided that her purpose was more important than her pride. Today, through the work she is doing through her new company, Reengineering HR, Kalila helps leaders and organizations to understand how to be people-focused, purpose-driven, and profit-aligned and also how to put strategies in place to avoid sinking the business ship by identifying and addressing internal icebergs before they take an organization down. After listening to our conversation today, I hope that you'll go to the show notes to find links to how you can connect with Kalila and also to learn more about the meaningful and impactful work that she's doing. And while you're there, please share this episode with your network. And if you haven't already, Be sure to follow or subscribe to the Impact Makers podcast so you never miss an episode in the future. Welcome, Khalila, to the Impact Makers podcast. This has been a long time on my wish list, and I'm so excited to have you join me today.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me
0: well, I want to get started right away and let everybody know a little bit more about you, including me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you've ended up here today? What's your story is about?
1: Yeah, that's so cool that you get the top HR question, tell me about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> so,
0: it's a trick. I always tell people it's oh. a trick question in an interview. I want you to keep it short and concise. Today, I want you to tell me all about you. <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. So uh, when I was nine, no, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So I am an accidental HR pro. It's not a field that I would have chosen for myself. I thought that I was too extroverted, too loud, too non compliant all those things that HR shouldn't be. And I am super passionate about people. I like to call myself an impact architect. Everything I do is to create and build to make impact. I'm a mom, a wife. A recent grandma, right? And um, yes, and I I have a pup named Miss Bailey, an inherited cat that we call Mister Bear. I like to tell people also that I'm a chicken whisperer. Every time I travel for work or to speak, I have to find chicken in the area, and I judge it hard. And uh, (laughs) and in between eating fried chicken, you know, I enjoy just spending time with family and friends, and and learning. Um, A big learner, love reading books, love listening to podcasts, and Figuring out new ways to improve and enhance and make impact in the world of work. That is a
0: fantastic introduction. So many things that I would, I think, we're like, I'd, I I want to be your best friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love accidental HR pro. I'm I'm the opposite of that chicken Whisper, I guess I could have called myself for many years the cupcake whisperer. I would travel and always get off the plane and go to a cupcake place and judge it hard. And by the way, the best cupcake I've ever found is in Hiawatha, Iowa, which I drove <laughs> I drove like an hour and a half from Des Moines to check out the cupcakes in Hiawatha, Iowa. So where's the best chicken in the world so far?
1: Yeah. So so it is a mix between two. So I recently was in Delaware and I went to the beach and had chicken at a tiny little spot. It was a roasted chicken, but it was so incredibly crispy on the outside and juicy on the inside. That was in my top tier. But because I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, I wanna say that there was a little hole in the wall restaurant on the corner, right? In New York City that, I ate their chicken and I've never had anything like it before again in my life. Um right now my go-to favorites are Smithfield's which is a local brand here. It's crispy. It's it's a mix between salty and seasoned. You don't know which one. And Church's chicken, they have a smokehouse chicken that's also flavorful. And so um I have tons of chicken favorites, but I think each one is their different It's, it's you I uniquely judge it on the crispiness, the flavor, whether it's smoked, fried, grilled, baked, roasted, all those things. So I think I have a favorite in each category, but if it's chicken, it's chicken.
0: <laughs> I love it. I see it. I see a YouTube show or maybe even a TV show in your future. Where you are the judge. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit more, like you mentioned growing up in Brooklyn, kind of like, I think, You know, from what I've read about you and I've listened to you on other podcasts, that's also a big part of your story. So tell me kind of like a little bit. Yeah, you can start back to when you're nine, but kind of how you've become who you are, what's made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. You know, mom and dad was both upper middle class. Mom worked for a big four bank, Bank of America, and dad worked on Wall Street. He was on a firefighting team, and so uh they called his team in, there was an audit, and it meant the money was funny. And I used to spend time underneath his desk when he went to work at Ernest and Company and Merrill Lynch. And I knew back then that I didn't want to work with numbers. It was too complicated, right? It was math that just steered me away. And, you know, just one day, mom and dad both uh, transitioned from Wall Street to blue collar work. They both retired from Wall Street, still young, and decided they wanted to work for New York City Transit Authority. Mom drove the big city bus and dad became a tower operator. And things were good. We always lived in the cool house. And one day alcoholism hit our house and it changed everything. The happy house came hard and heavy. And as the oldest, I felt like I had to defend the land and it didn't work out the way I expected. My father and I grew a big distance. We fought a lot. I was put out probably at the young age of 13 and 14. And I was riding trains. I would always go to school and try to keep what I was experiencing at home secret because I didn't want to get in trouble. I thought I could get in trouble. But I remember my sisters and I building a fort in the backyard in this little shed we had. And so when my dad used to drink and we would fight or he would decide that day to put me out, I would leave the house. And I'm I'm not a I'm young, you know, I'm a child. I would circle back when they would sleep and I was able to stay in the shed after a little, little while, but it got to the point where, you know, riding the train from Rockaway Parkway on the L all the way to Union Station, it became tiring. And one day I called my cousins who lived upstate New York and decided to go, go upstate and they were all bad. Like they were, you know, involved with the drug trade, the street trade. They did things that I wasn't raised to do. But I didn't go go up there to engage in the activities that they were engaging in. I went up there, Jen, Jennifer, because I wanted a bed. I was tired of riding the train. I was tired of not being safe as a young woman. I didn't have anything to give people for places to stay except myself, and I wasn't ready to give that up.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. You're going to have me in tears here. You can't make me cry on my own podcast now. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I ended up upstate New York, Troy, New York, to be exact. And I lived there for years and I ended up in trouble there. You've heard my story. You know, I was I ended up on the streets with with my cousins doing the same thing that they did. And I didn't recognize the error of my ways until I was picked up on 787 South on my way back to to, to town after my mom asked me to come home. And I decided I didn't want to go back because it was going to repeat itself. And I was arrested. And I tried to run and I didn't make it too far. I remember the officer saying, you have to tell everybody in the car. I'm tired of women getting in trouble for things like this. And the reality of it was that I wasn't forced to do anything. I had made the decision to be there, you know, and I knew what they were doing. And so I took responsibility and I ended up serving almost five years in prison. And while I was upstate, the people that I was on the street with were made up of people who are affiliated with organizations, gangs, people that were already justice impacted. And what I didn't know at that point is that the things that I had went through in my past would help qualify me in a role that would introduce me to human resource.
0: Again, I'm fascinated uh, as usual, but tell me how, so, so you serve five years, you come out and what are your first steps? Had you made the decision to kind of change your life or were you still kind of in that world and just trying to figure it out?
1: Yeah. So while I was in while I was serving time, I just had this moment. You know, I was, like, you know, I grew up it, when I was eight, nine years old. Mom had us in church. You know, I was a missionette. I learned scriptures for badges. Right? It was like Girl Scouts, and so we were really involved in the church. And I just. It, it was a point in my life where I backslid and I just didn't walk the way that I was raised. And all these life experiences had happened and they affected me. You know, that, that saying my people perish because of lack of knowledge. If you don't know what to do, especially at a young age, you just do what you believe is right. And you don't really have the wisdom to understand what right is at that moment, but you do it based on what you have. That's why education and experience is important. And so um, while I was serving time, I just I met a young lady who invited me to come help out at the church services there. And I went and started buffing the floors and uh, bringing the microphone and serving warm water to the speakers who would come in. And it wasn't at that moment where I decided I wanted to do better, but I realized that my I thought my life was over. And I realized that there was another chance for me to do better, that I would be able to help people like me who grew up in good homes, but something happened. Alcoholism or drugs may have hit your house and it changed the trajectory of your life. And if I could make a difference, I would. I, I I no longer wanted just the picket fence or the tall, dark and fine husband. I wanted to make impact in the lives of people. And I made that decision while I was there. And I knew that when I came home that I was going to do everything that I could to help change and shift someone's life. And um, that started me on this path where I drew closer to, to God, and and drawing closer to God, I was able to discover a deeper part of who Kalila is and who Kalila was, and some of the things that she experienced. And I realized that I could turn my pain and my problems into purpose. And so I came home, and I made the decision that I wouldn't go back upstate. I would come home and move back in with mommy and daddy. It's important. And I shared that during that time, mom and dad, of course, was extremely disappointed dad started writing me and he wrote me this letter. And the only thing on the letter was you only fail if you stop trying. And I put that thing on my wall, and I'll never forget it because every time I felt drained, I felt discouraged. I, I thought to myself, if you keep going, you're not failing, you, you're moving forward. And so I didn't have give up in me because of that letter, even though things were hard. I was free, even though I was locked in. And I was able to begin to help other people that were serving time get free, even though they were locked in. This may blow your mind, but I started programs in the prison. I started a cultural enrichment committee. I started a program for moms who had children that were outside and they were inside. I just was starting things and and I didn't know that I could build and develop. Again, those things were pulled out of you when you're in situations, you, know, you, you don't really know what you have until you're put in a situation and you have to use it. And all those things that I used then, I carried them with me when I came home and I didn't realize that they would be used for good, because I came home and went back home to mom and was looking for a job. You know, I I had to find a job if I wanted to stay home. And um, I ran into this girl that I served time with named Ebony on 10th Street in Chelsea. And she said, my company is is hiring. I was like, your company is hiring. She said, yeah, it's a, a sprint. I was like, are they going to hire us? She was like, I work there. So I went. Jennifer, I did not want to work on the phone, but I went because, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Right. And I went there and got stuck in the elevator with this lady named Michelle. She ended up being the big boss. And we had a conversation for 30 minutes in the elevator. I was telling her that, you know, I had just came home and that, you know, you have to you have to share those things because parole was going to come check in. Um, I was sentenced to almost five to life. I had life parole. And it was because of the Rockefeller laws, and I can talk about that uh, a little later when I share about some of the work I'm doing now with, ju- ju- with justice-impacted individuals um, finding meaningful opportunities. And when the elevator doors opened, she said, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to give you a chance. And she took me down to an account, um, and it was a Sprint PCS account, and I'm sorry, Sprint Landline account. And she introduced me to who would be my boss, and his name was Alefis Alokanola. I just want to leave that there. Right.
0: <laughs> I think this goes somewhere, right?
1: <laughs> it does. And, um, you know, I and she introduced me to him and, I, you know, I told him I didn't have any experience working on phones and he helped kind of get me trained and up and running. And I wasn't looking for a relationship and we actually didn't gain a relationship for another year or two after I started working and it was after I left. But um, I met my husband in this place. I ran into this girl that I served time with and ended up at this job because I had to find a job. And I met my husband who encouraged me to go back to school, to do the work, to not be ashamed of my past experience because I still walked with shame. And it wasn't until I met George Taylor and this is going to blow your mind. And he told me about True Colors that I was willing to openly expose that part of who I am.
0: So yeah, you you said you're going to blow your mind. You blow my mind so many times already. <laughs> so, I mean, wow, a lot of uh, maybe divine intervention there with the, the meeting on the street, the elevator, the meeting, the man who trained you, who became your husband. How did you meet George Taylor?
1: Yeah, so. I was doing a um, a speaking engagement for an organization called the Women's Venture Fund. Remember, I grew up in New York City, right? And so I knew people who knew people. I had ran into someone who introduced me to the Women's Venture Fund. It was an organization, called, almost like a women's association to help you in career and business skills, that kind of thing. I had connected with them. I had spoken at their conference before and... I was on my way to New York City for their new conference and George Taylor was there from Wilmington. And now I want to add somebody had tried to introduce us before we introduced by email, but we never met in person. Somebody said, hey, he said, somebody told me I should connect with you. I'm George. I'm like, hi, I'm Khalila." Good to meet you. That was it. And when I got there, I saw him and I was like, hi, George Kalila, a Canola from from Wilmington. He was like, wow, what are you doing here? I was like, I was going to ask you the same thing. And so he was there as an investor sharing a story on investing in the company and killing it if it's not working effectively. And I was there encouraging women in the room who had decided to build businesses uh, professionally developed themselves to, to understand their hard case, their head case, and their briefcase, to understand their motivating factors, their cognitive abilities, as well as what they do in order to be effective in the businesses that they were building. Now, when I came home, Al and I dated. We eventually got married, but his company relocated him to Wilmington, North Carolina. And so that's how I got to this this small town. And. I had a moment when I got here, I couldn't find any work to do. And so I just thought, well, I had worked with him at Sprint, and then I found a job at an executive search firm in Reverse called David Warner International, and everybody that came there was like a senior level executive who we were doing, we were making introductions to help them with career transition. So it was almost like a headhunter. Well, i worked with Salai Anuzi, the former chairman of Monster Worldwide, um, Hunter Johnson, former president of Daimler Chrysler, like all these credible people. And I didn't realize that that was HR work. I didn't know that yet. Right. And so we're doing this work. We end up in North Carolina. I can't find a job. And so I try to build a business doing some of the work I did for David, marketing and events. You know, I would market people and I would do C-suite events to bring them together. No one would hire me for marketing in Wilmington because they didn't know me. And then this guy, Jonathan Weiss, decided to hire me to do an event, but it was outside the scope of what I had skills with doing. It was actually party type event. He was celebrating his retirement at 40, selling diamonds. And so we he did this event, introduced me to all these people. And at that moment I built this event business. And I, it, it was important for me to share that because I ran that business for 10 years in Wilmington. And then one day I was on the side of a building doing work I had done with my eyes closed and everything was going wrong. And I had that voice in me saying I told you that you have to close this business to empower people. I remembered that moment when I came home that I said I wanted to make impact in the lives of others. And it caught up with me. And so after that event, it was my last event. I didn't know what I was going to do. I started empowering women based on Dr. Seuss books, lessons of leadership from Dr. Seuss for powerful women who aspire to lead. And it was through those workshops and those events that I was introduced to the Women's Venture Fund where I met George Taylor. And so we were introduced. We decided to go grab food after the conference, and he told me this crazy story about starting a brewery that hired active gang members because a 16-year-old by the name of Shane Simpson had been gunned down not too far from his Google-type office. He and his sons had started a company called Untapped. They're serial entrepreneurs, which is a beer app that sold a couple years ago to a private equity firm, and I thought that he had lost his mind. Here it is like this this, this, this Caucasian man with no experience with the inner city telling me that he wants to build a business and hire active gang. They had to stay active in the gangs. They wasn't coming out. They had to stay active because he wanted to leverage the influence that they had to help stop violence. And I was like, this is so dangerous. He was like, I'm willing to put my money there, but I don't have any proof that people can go from a place Of problems and end up in a place of positivity, and I realized at that moment that this purpose was more important than my pride. And I shared my story with George Taylor for the first time in decades. Had I I hadn't shared it with anybody because by now, my friends are in the country club and behind the gate. You know, I'm Kalila, a low canola, and. I thought, what are they going to say? They're not going to be, be my friends anymore. And it didn't matter because I held myself accountable to those words about making impact in the lives of others. I shared my story with George and he asked me, would I come and share the story with these young men that he, would cons- he was considering hiring? And that began my journey at True Colors.
0: So you started there in H. I mean, he, did he create a position for you in HR to... To help hire or I'm, I'm fascinated by the, I love the idea that they need to be active game members so they can leverage the influence, but tell me how an HR person deals with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there were no roles yet so like I was born in just as a contractor without a title, and so the contract was for that one day first to share the story. And I called the story from the block to the boardroom, which is kind of my signature story now, right? And I use it to help people share their stories about lessons you learn on blocks that you can apply and use in boardrooms, right? Because tables, you hide your your legs. But if we use where we've been and expose our legs, we can build more intentional systems in our boardroom for people that are more impactful. And so I said to him, One day is fine. I shared my story. He called me that evening and was like, the guys loved you. They really loved what you said. And they each got something from it. Can you come and expound on that topic for a week? I'll give you a week contract. He gave me a week contract. And then he said, I need you to do more. I need you to come up with some training for them because they're not experienced with working in a corporate environment. And they're in this building with his other company. And this company is filled with young white millennials that are educated. And then you have a small group of probably 12 active gang members coming in with their pants hanging down. And you thought it would be an issue. But after the first or second day, they were the most popular people in the building. And it showed me how you could integrate cultures. Right. I was learning as we we were going. And I began to developing a training on life skills, social skills, and business skills because I knew what I needed when I came home when I was making that transition after losing all that time. And that life skills, social skills, and business skills became the foundation of what True Colors is and what we were best known for. And it was a curriculum that I designed called Disrupt You. It was disrupting what you believed about yourself, disrupting what you believed about your past and disrupting your perspective of the limitations in the future. And so I thought that we would be intentional and teach people how to identify what was in them. We can help them transition from the block into the boardroom. And so um, Disrupt You was created. It was the foundation. And it wasn't until, I guess, after a year where George said, I know the contract is coming to an end and you might be ready to go, but I think that there's an important job in human resource and education that you can lead. And I looked at him and I was like, I'm definitely not your HR person. I'm not the one for you. I was like, uh. I think that I, I don't break rules, George, but I come real close to the edge for these young men in here. And, you know, like I come real close. I said, like, I want to I, I I want to be here, but I don't think that I, I, I'm i not your HR person. And I told him I have no experience in compliance. I didn't know HR. I just knew what I learned at David for international making connections and exchanges. I knew that I built something in the prison. I knew what I had done so far, but I didn't have any formal HR experience. and. He was like, why don't you just think about it and let me know? And Jennifer, I thought about it. And a few things happened for me in that that quiet moment. I realized that I could use my life experiences as learnings to help lead me. I realized that there were educational programs that I could jump in and tap into where I could learn if I really wanted this opportunity. And there were people like you who were veterans in the industry that I could start following and see what had been done to help better equip me for the the role. And I said, yes. And I was like, I'll try it for six months and then we'll see what happens. And we tried it for six months. And I realized that I was in love with an industry. I was in love with a contract job that I wanted to be full-time, and he made me full-time after that, and he started me as his director of HR. Eventually, I rose to chief people officer. We went from a team of 12 to a team of a little over 100, and uh, which is not large, but for someone with no experience in an industry, um, it was a big deal. And the job wasn't easy. Not only did they have to stay active, not only did we hire active gang members, but we also hired people who were not active gang members, but justice impacted. And we hired people who were highly educated to help us build out the processes and the systems and the brewery. We had machinery, equipment, we had labs. We had to understand yeast and processing, you know, and hops and we needed people. So how do you integrate a community of people from all walks of life when you know that the, 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 the business that you're building is not just a brewery; it's a sustainable company that you're using to help reduce violence in the area. True Colors was never just a brewery; it was a for-profit organization with the social mission to unite gang rivals and decrease violence in our city while uniting communities across the country. And I, I was there up until the company closed last year in September.
0: I remember reading, you know, your kind of post, I believe, on LinkedIn about the company closing, and I was. So sad, both for you, but also for the people there, because it did seem like, you know, such a, a meaningful, impactful organization. Was that a surprise to you that that you weren't going to be able to do that anymore? Or was it something that had been coming for a while?
1: Hey, I was shocked. I, I, I got a call from someone, a friend, and said, hey, I'm sorry. I was like, about what? She was like, I heard True Colors is closing. I was like, who told you that? She was like, that's the word out right now. So I went to my CEO and um, he was like, True Colors is closing. I was like, when? He was like, today's the last day. I need you to talk to the team in an hour. And so that's how I learned. And um, I didn't have anything to say. I was like, I won't talk to the team. I need you to talk to the team because they have to speak to you as the CEO. I had to come up with something to do to help the people that were in there because everybody is different you know, everybody's emotional intelligence is different. And I'm thinking about these things that could be triggering, because, you know, when you have lived in a marginalized community for so long, and you have this hope in this thing, when it's taken from you, you become discouraged. And the first thing you think is, I need to go back to what I used to do. And so I was looking for prevention methods and measures, things that I could do. And He made the announcement and said that you no longer have to come back after today. Your your check that's coming Friday is what you get. That's it. And and the insurance will be canceled at the end of the month. And it was only a week left towards the end of the month. And uh, it was hard and it was heartbreaking. I've never been so crushed. Only a few things crushed me like that. And it wasn't just about me being crushed about a job. It was about all the young men and women that worked for us that had dedicated themselves, dedicated their skills, de- de- dedicated their hearts to what we were building. True Color shouldn't have failed because. It, it was a social, it's a social impact company. And we had some of the best people aligned with us. Molson Coors was a minority stake partner. We had the best investors. I still speak to some of them today. True color shouldn't have failed. I think that there was a lot of variables that played a role. And, you know, and I'm really candid about this. I think that George is an incredible CEO. He's really good at a tech company, but a tech company doesn't equate to a people business. And, I think that sometimes, and we see it in our industry a lot, you have strong C suite team members and I was in the C-suite, but, you know, with different experience and they don't lean on their people, partners enough to help them navigate through some of the challenges or share some of the wisdom that they have to help shift things when they see the boat rocking a little bit. And I knew the boat was rocking, but I didn't know that it was going to hit us and that we would eventually sink. And that last experience became part of What I do in my new business, the engineering HR, is helping companies identify icebergs and areas of impact before they hit the ship. I audit your people and your practice. You know, I let you know where you are and where they are. And I come up with solutions, systems, and strategies to help you figure out where to go next. And I do that through specialty training so you don't feel like I'm giving you something, but I'm showing you something and we're building it out together. And um, it's because I was on a ship that sank and we didn't see the icebergs that were coming. And so um, it was a really hard day, you know, and I ended up you know, asking to stay in the building for a couple of weeks, and um, I called the community college and had a team come from there to help do resumes and cover letters for me for all the team members who wanted it. I reached out online, LinkedIn. You saw that for anybody who was hiring and created a spreadsheet with resumes and information of people who were looking for remote hybrid in office or were willing to relocate work. And then I hosted something called a, a pink slip party, where... I invited companies who had jobs and opportunities available locally in our area to come in and meet our team who had been let go. And for those companies who were willing to hire the guys, but it required a real hard skill like electrical work, um, Cape Fear Community College brought in an organization that they are partnered with that was willing to pay for the apprentice training while that individual was working in these companies as an assistant. And so- It was a good thing. I think that more people would have came to the Pink Slip Party if they understood more about what we did in True Colors. It's really hard to say, hey, come hire a group of active gang members because the company closed. Right. And it was really hard. And I think a lot more people wanted to help, but they didn't know how they didn't understand how they weren't educated and in, in how to do it. And we probably hadn't sparked the conversation with them to introduce them more to what we did behind closed doors to show them the changes that we see made to show them the young men who were in their children's lives or the young men who were, were getting apartments and townhomes and houses and cars who were coming off of parole and were giving back to their community you know, in addition to what they did in True Colors with working, one of the internal programs I created was called True Community. It was a competition. And so the competition was for teams. And so the gang alone was split up into two teams and they would elect a head coach and an assistant coach and it would be ran almost like an NFL game. There, there would be plays, but the plays were the around work performance and giving back. And so if you showed up on time, if your supervisor gave you a good performance evaluation, you would garner community cash points, which would go into the bank. And those points could be converted into real life experiences because their job wasn't to just reduce violence, but to help change performance perspective externally in the community. So even giving back to the food bank or serving in one way, shape or form, you could go on a point for. And so I had young men that were really focused on doing their job and but also interested in giving back to the community at first because they knew they could get community cash for it. And then it became a way of life. And I realized that if you give people a confidence to the believe they can and the opportunity to do it, they, they will. And if you change what an individual thinks about themselves, it will change what they believe about their community. They'll actually begin to believe that what they do makes a significant difference and they can impact their lives and the lives of the people that they live next to. It gave them ownership of where they live and made, them responsible about what was taking place and it gave them the strength and the confidence they need to stand when we were faced with adversity because people still got shot Jennifer people still were killed I mean I was with a young man helping him pick out a a crib on Friday and at 10 o'clock at night I got a call that said he had been shot and I had to come to the hospital because he didn't make it and I had to call his mom And so I I wasn't the nine to five HR. I had to, I was working 24 seven. I had shot spotted on my phone. So I would see where people were shooting guns and I would see if it was an area where anyone that worked for us lived or it was an area of impact that we focused on because we measured these things. And I had to figure out how to bring the entire team back together Maybe not the next day, but the next seventy-two hours, and help rebuild a culture of trust and community after someone felt violated because a rival gang had gunned someone down, and those things were things that we never announced. Without which, I think that. Now, I wish that we would have shared some of those really hard moments with the community because we probably would have built more allies. But it was a hard job, but I learned through it. And one of the biggest honors of my HR career is working with those young men. And um, I miss working with them today, but I'm proud to say that out of the the guys that worked with us, 70 percent of them are working in jobs today. Violence is still down. Um, they're educating their community. they're at county and government organizations who gave them an opportunity after they left true colors. Some of them have started their own businesses. One is doing contract work on his own, which is incredible, but it was part of the education and the skill trades and the things that we taught them in there they believed they could. They realized that better is possible and it started with them and then they ran and when you think about human resource, you often think about payroll and you think about just recruitment and you think about compliance and i believe that you do think about those things but there was much more there there's a strategy part of hr that some people, I believe, dig deep in, and it's centered around understanding and helping companies understand that you can be people-focused, purpose-driven, and profit-aligned. You can have free the hard way. You can be intentional with your creation because you're not basing it on a book or on a trend, but you're basing it on who your people are and what you're experiencing at that moment. And if you use that data to define and to design what your organization needs, number one, you'll have buy-in because you act first and you shape second. And number two, you you'll Make maximum impact because they're saying that they need it, and you know that they do. And you know, if you are HR and you have a seat at the table, you have to use your voice. If you don't, you should you should exit your seat at the table and give it to somebody else who's going to use it effectively.
0: I'm so impacted by your words and your story. You brought it up right at the end, and I had written it down because I I shared with you earlier before we started recording. I think I first came across you as a guest on. uh, the HR Social Hour Half Hour podcast, which is a fun name that John Thurman and Wendy Daly uh, did for a while. And you had me in that discussion already. But when you shared people-focused, purpose-driven, profit-aligned, it was like an arrow through my heart um, because I think that is what HR should be about. And you truly live that and your life story shares that. I love the example that you're setting for your community, for the people in it, and the people in this profession. So thank you for that. And I'm going to recompose myself, but um, tell me why you stay in HR. You know, you've started your own company. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. But why did you start re-engineering HR or re-engineered HR after, after going through this kind of really difficult experience of closing down a company and, and a purpose that you loved?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I was offered a couple jobs, right? Moved to California, applied for this job. It's some really big companies, big packages. I was like, oh, yes. And everything in me was just like, you have to share what you've learned and what you experience with people. Like, this is not about you. This is about the HR community as a whole. What could you do? To help exchange knowledge and your process of ongoing learning, you don't need to reinvent anything. You don't need to, you don't need to start from scratch. You can just re-engineer, right? And you know, when you think about re-engineering, there's just a few components that you have to change. It's not me reinventing everything, it's just some things that has to be fine-tuned. And so I started re-engineering HR because I realized that there's a lot of companies like true colors. There's a lot of organizations like other organizations that I've had the, the pleasure of working with that have internal issues that are never identified before that iceberg makes impact. We went through the great resignation, right? People thought they left because of money, but it was more about their values, right? They put more value in their values, right? And so then we went through quiet quitting. We go through all these challenges and we what we don't realize is that the world of work changes depending on what's happening in the world, right? And so we always have to pivot and adapt. And so I started re engineering HR to help companies collect the information that they need so that they could put together preventive measures before those icebergs hit their ships. And it's not just about icebergs. It's about areas of impact that can affect and impact initiatives that you've done that you should be proud of. I um in this company Jennifer I have a tool that we've designed called the alphabet audit and the alphabet order is what measures your people and your practices. It's something that we created from scratch. And so it tells you the personality profile of the individual taking the assessment and also helps answer questions around belonging, around diversity, around happiness, around kindness, around culture, around whether they have what they need to be effective in their roles. And so you have three measurements. Measure- one. The first measurement is that it shows us the icebergs. The second measurement is the impact. And then the third measurement is individuals. And I provide that in the data report to organizations and come up with a specialty training that helps unpack the solutions and the strategies that they can apply. But I don't just let the senior suite do it. I bring in the mid-level management, those responsible, and equip them so they can do it themselves. Don't bring me in to show your team how to be effective. Let me train the trainers so that you can do it and you can get buy-in from the team that you're serving. And so I started re-engineering HR so that other companies can identify before impact is made. HR is hard. And sometimes we don't want to talk about certain things, but we have to talk about the elephants in the room. People, Some people aren't happy at work. Sometimes there's, people don't leave companies. People leave bad managers. And you may be a bad manager. And so I want to tell you if you're a bad manager, but I also want to show you ways to be better. And- if you decide to do that, then you'll salvage not just the team, but also the impact your team leaving can make. And so I'm helping you save money and I'm helping you go back to that through the hard way, focusing on your people, Focusing on your purpose because your mission, vision, and values is real and you're going to be held accountable to it. And it's going to help your profit margin. When people realize you're listening to them, when they feel integrated within your community, their productivity increases. And that audit will show you areas that you can invest in so that you can increase productivity. And it's been hard for me because, you know, uh, but before I announced We an HR and I started it. By force, I'm, I'm being forced again, right? Uh, I was, I was like, I'm gonna do a contract work, and I got contracted. Um, I was already doing some training and building training for Dave's Killer Bread Foundation. They help organizations. They train employers who are building our justice, um, second chance hire campaigns, who want to bring in people who um, have served time or who've been justice impacted, and they transitioned over. Um, to a nonprofit called JFF, and so I was doing all this contract work, and in doing this contract work, one of the companies was like, "Hey, you have to have a company if we need to pay you." And I was like, "Man, okay." So I created We Engineer in HR, and uh, and so I started doing a lot of work helping companies figure out what they have to fix to build out these fair chance hiring campaigns, and. The local community did the story about reengineering H John was like she's helping marginalized communities and and fair chance and I was just like I didn't want, want to be the girl that was labeled just working with people that was justice impacted and I, I was so convicted because I was like well why not right and I was like I don't want to limit the people that think that they can work with me you know and so I still do the justice impact work um with, with the company I'm still building training and, cu- and curriculum for for us. I'm still auditing the folks to show them areas where their language has to be changed, their interview process has to be changed, their background checks need to be updated. Um, You can't ask people if they've been convicted of a felony. Um, And we do all those things by auditing. A lot of people bring me in to speak and to do a training. I get so much Traction that way. Um, Hey, we have a problem. Our team is not showing up to serve in hospitality, tourism, money is down, this is down. The state of Delaware and the Delaware Restaurant Association brought me in. I did a quick audit, created a training called the Serve Principle. And we created the strategy, and the strategy was unpacked by the people that was there. They created tools like a compass. I had them create on, um called the expectation exceeder. How What what expectations can I see to help guide me to increase our stars? And so just all these things, and I realized that my brain works differently because I didn't come in through the traditional door, and I'm grateful for that. If I came in through the traditional door, I would have created a business where I did payroll. A monthly for someone. I just focused on recruitment. I can recruit. I can do your payroll. But I think that my brain works so much better in helping you find solutions and strategies that affect your bottom line and your people. And I think that I'm the best for it because I have this duality of being on the block and then transitioning in the boardroom. And so I can speak the language and I understand what it means to be marginalized or have to check a box because when I signed up to get my certification, I had to still check a box, right? And I was afraid to, but I also know what it means to be in the C-suite and have a seat at the table and be able to make programs, processes and systems for the people that may be reintegrating back into the community like me, or just may be in the workplace and may be different and feel like there's no opportunity for them. And so I started Rear, re-engineering HR because I was on a ship. That got hit and I didn't know. And it affected me not just in my pockets, but in my personal self. It broke my heart and I didn't know what to do. And I consider myself pretty resilient, you know, and for the normal person who may not be as resilient, who may not have as much grit going through a situation like we went through may have affected them differently. And I want to avoid that from happening. I think companies will be more effective if they are intentional and I want to help them do that.
0: Oh, and I love the work that you're doing. Well, let's, um, and I can I could talk to you all day and maybe I will schedule some time to do that sometime, but I want to leave us with, you did a Disrupt HR talk on dirty HR and i know that's kind of one of you have so many uh what was the one heart head and briefcase what were the three things head case heart case and briefcase i <laughs> love ah, that and the purpose driven or people focused purpose driven profit aligned those are amazing but tell me what dirty hr is
1: yeah and so it's an acronym So Dirty HR is about making sure your fingerprint is on what you touch as an HR pro. Everybody's dirty formula is different, right? But it's still dirty. And so have you seen uh, a movie uh, called Divergent? Yes, I have. Yeah. And so that D is divergent. You know, some people say some people have changed that D to diversity, but it's divergent. It means that you don't fit into one faction. Right. You're multifaceted. There's a generalist in you that you can use to apply in those different areas. The I is being intentional and intentionality produces impact. The R is being responsible, not just for what you do, but what you don't do that, you know, you should right? That T is trustworthy. Your team trusts that you're going to make the right decisions for them by the process processes and the systems that you produce and the conversations that you have. And the why is not forgetting your why. Why did you join this industry? Why did you show up every day? Why do you believe you are the best for the world and you have the seat that you have? And I formulated it so that HR pros can create their own dirty formula, like, so you don't fit in one faction, what do you need to do to groom yourself so that you can apply yourself in all these areas where they could be lacking. And so it's, a, um, I like to call it, a way to keep HR focused and to stir you up, because when you say dirty, you're like, what? Does that mean that I break rules? No, that just means that I'm applying a model and a method that has my fingerprint on it. And it may require me to get my hands dirty a little bit. You know, I don't have to be just seated in the office. I understand what it means to be on the front line. And I have conversations there. I create programs for the people that work there. And I understand what it means to be there because all of us in HR were there before. So I like to encourage HR pros to get dirty, right? To to be divergent, to be intentional, to be responsible, to, to be trustworthy. How can I get there? What can I do to build trust among my team? When you understand what you lack, it'll show you what you need to do to help lead you, you know? And what is my why? If you keep your why on your desktop or your why on a sticky note, every time you show up and things get hard or things change, like what we saw with George Floyd or the quiet quitting or the most recent layoff, your why will always help you figure out your how. And we need need a system like that so that we can keep going because HR is hard work and it's also heart work.
0: I'm going to leave it at that because I've been inspired and I'm going to do something dirty. Um <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I love you. And I thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. We will link up to ways where people can connect with you. You have a couple of great downloads for workbooks. I'll add those as well. I'll link to your Disrupt HR Talk on Dirty HR. I just want more people to be able to work with you, to hear from you, to read your book that is coming out in 2024. And I've got all kinds of ideas for more books for you as I'm sure you do too, <laughs> but I want, to <laughs> I, want, I want more people to know you. And I hope by sharing a little bit of your story on the Impact Makers community, that they'll follow you and the work that you do and bring you into their companies to help re-engineer HR. So thank you so much, Kalila, for joining me
1: today. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It was a pleasure, honor to be here.
0: It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence.